If talking about new travel destinations or discovering the latest travel gadgets gets your heart racing just like mine, well then, you are in the right place. Hello there, I'm Katrina Rountree and welcome to another episode of Journeys to Come, our podcast about the wonders of travel, a place where we share memories from recent trips and we dream about upcoming adventures. So get your passports ready and join me for Journeys to Come. Hello there. This week we are off to India, where we explore everything from food to fashion. So joining me on the program are Australian fashion designer Rebecca Thompson, discussing the creative influence that she takes from India. Ian Herbie Hempel, sharing his stories of spice travels right around the country. Kim Pierce, the creator of Slumware, who talks about giving back through travel, and travel writer Sophie Southall explaining why India is her very favourite destination. So do join me as we embark on our journey around India, starting with a good friend of mine, somebody who I think is quite amazing, fashion designer, Rebecca Thompson. Tell us, what is it about India that has you enamoured? Well, it's now got my heart because I actually set up a factory there, so Obviously, you know, I have to go there, but um, what a place, the people, the colour, um, full of history, inspiration, texture, textiles, uh, beading, embroidery. Do you want me to keep going? When colour. you do go there, when you do go there, <laughs> what, what, I mean, aside from your work, where do you like to go? Where do you like to eat or what, what tips can you give us? Yeah, so... Actually, it's funny because often when I go, the very first thing I do is go for a sort of an inspiration, like 24 hours. I go into Delhi yes, and I go into what what now is shopping malls. They didn't exist. When I started 20 years ago, there was only markets. There was no shopping malls. Um, and But I will go and look at what people are doing. I will go and see what people are eating because that is what's inspiring everything about fashion, whether it's the Western world or the Eastern world. All these little bits and pieces definitely make a difference to what I'm actually designing. So how did your brand start 20 years ago with the connection to India? Was it a holiday that triggered it or, or, or where did no, it all begin? I had created a piece personally for myself that I wore and... Um, I wasn't working out of India at the time. I had worked in India prior to this. And I was living in Sydney. Someone had said, I love what you're wearing. It was another fashion designer. They offered me 150 units that they would like to buy from me. And I just decided that I would say yes with no real understanding of where I was going to manufacture it. And um, literally, I rang the person that re- that made it for me in India and said, I'd like to come and see you and I'd like to do something amazing and create these skirts. And the next thing you know, I've built a little factory and <laughs> employed 12 guys because it's actually a man's trade and it's, you know, all men that work for me in India, but they've been with me the whole 17 years. And why is that? I think probably because at the time it was a man's world Mm. in the rag trade. I definitely think it's changing. I mean, India has, in the 20 years that I've worked out of there, is completely different from what it looked like 20 years ago. So I don't think it was a woman's world. It was really hard for me to actually start my business when I first started. Um, But it was the trade that their father would, you know, teach to their son and their son would teach to their next child. But 
these days now we've got women that were sort of in finishing positions, but now women are actually on the machines and they're learning the craft. They did do a lot of beading and embroidery, but the actual stitching of a garment was a male employee you know employee Rebecca you you mentioned you've been going there for 20 years 67 Mm. trips yeah what advice can you give us as travelers where do you where do you recommend we have to go to what should Um, we eat where should we stay Okay, so eating-wise, I think there's a lot of amazing restaurants coming out of India and there's a lot of people that are also coming into India that are starting amazing restaurants. So there's a fantastic Italian community, there's a fantastic, yeah, Turkish community and then there is the amazing actual restaurants that are run by Indians but they're also employing quite amazing uh, chefs from all over the world. So there's a, one of my favourite restaurants is called Olive. There's three or four of them dotted now throughout Delhi. Okay. Um, but then there's Writing also... This down. Yeah, <laughs> Bangkok. There's like Bangkok Terrace, which is an amazing restaurant on top of the sea, like really high up near the Kutub Minar, which is a landmark in Delhi. And it basically looks over the whole of Delhi and it's quite magnificent especially in the time where you see kite flying and the sun setting have um, you got a favorite hotel for us i definitely think Ooh. anything that's oberoi or the imperial okay old school rambag yeah. in jaipur thank you so much for joining me don't forget if you have any questions that you may like to ask me in regards to travel or anything at all for that matter feel free fire away it's, it's quite varied, this show. There's, there's so many wonderful tales to be told. But right now, we're going to chat about the food and, in particular, the spices of India. And we have uh, a fantastic fellow with us now on the phone, Ian Herbie Hempel. Now, he spent his childhood surrounded by the magnificent fragrances and the flavours of herbs. Very different, I must say, to my childhood. So part of his travels into the world of spices have taken him to an international spice meeting in New Delhi, where he discovered that there really is a brotherhood of spice merchants. I love that. I want to know about that. So to tell us more about India and how it's helped influence the world of spices. We are now joined by Herbie himself, Ian Herbie Hempel. Hello, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thanks, Katrina. Your childhood was very different to mine. I did not have, I loved my mother's food. I don't want to say anything negative about, about the cooking we had at home, but we did not have the spices. And, and here you are, your childhood was shaped by them. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it was very much because uh, when mum and dad first started growing herbs, so many people were asking questions about them Mm -hmm. uh, that she was actually the first Australian to write a book on herbs in 1959. And the interesting thing was that at that time, herbs were sort of, you know, a bit sexy and new. They 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 were different. And, of course, we had all the, you know, wonderful foodies of the time, dear Margaret Fulton and uh, Ted Maloney Mm. and all sorts of people involved in food would come out to mum and dad's place at Dural. Now, mum had no formal um, cooking training. She did do some classes with the lovely uh, late Greta Anna Toplitsky. Oh, yes. Um, But uh, she had no formal training, which actually was fantastic because... She was constantly experimenting with recipes to work out how herbs and spices could be used in what you might call everyday family cooking. But she was experimenting on you. Absolutely. (laughs) So, you know, I'd come home from school and, you know, wonder what's for dinner tonight. And, of course, 
sometimes it might be the same thing for four or five nights in a row while mum perfected the while recipe. She, I see, yeah. But the other thing was uh, we were growing a lot of herbs. Dad would be picking and drying them. I'd earn my pocket money helping him. So I suppose I think what happened is I absorbed a lot subliminally because the sense, human yes. sense of smell is so powerful anyway. Mm. And I think that just growing up in that environment with all these natural fragrances around me uh, just sort of led me to the fact that, you know, this was something that I really wanted to continue be, to be involved in. Now, the thing that was really interesting, I, I noticed you're quoting from my uh, early book that came out in 2001, uh, Spice Travels, mm. um, where the world of spices was actually a little bit different. And when that book was launched, um, the wonderful Alan Saunders, who did the launch, put something very succinctly when he said... Herbs are something that we are now all familiar with. They grow in the garden. We can go and get them. We can pick them. We can see them. But spices, spices come from places that are a bit exotic, often dangerous. You've got to travel to get them. Mm. And that's, I think, one of the things that has continued to maintain my interest and passion for spices, um, along with, of course, the wonderful use of them in cooking and, and, and how much they have influenced so many cuisines around the world. We have to ask you about the connection between spices and our beloved India. Tell us about that. India is probably, well, not probably, it is definitely the world's largest producer of spices. Mm. It is the world's largest consumer of spices. It is the world's largest exporter of spices. So you'll get no other country that grows as many different spices as India. And, of course, one of the key ones that really had the most major influence on the spice trade and often on the voyages of discovery that people yes. made was something as simple as pepper. Really? Yes. Black peppercorns. Now, peppercorns grow in a tropical climbing vine that is native to the south of India. So around uh, uh, 2,000 years ago, pepper only grew in the uh, state of Kerala in southern India uh, and some in Tamil Nadu in the highlands. But it was really um, pepper that influenced the whole interest in spices. Arab traders came to the southwest coast of India and started trading in pepper. And, of course, then when they started doing that, there were other spices that came from other areas. So there were cloves and nutmeg from the Indonesian mm -hmm. archipelago. Mm -hmm. um, there were uh, uh, cinnamon from Sri Lanka, of course, and this was something that literally spread around the world. Pepper was one of the few spices to be grown outside of its country of origin uh, by around about 100 AD. And because uh, many spices weren't grown outside of their countries of origin for many, many centuries after being discovered. Look at you go, Herbie. This is fascinating. I can totally understand how, I mean, I'm totally drawn in just by pepper alone. And yeah. I can see how you devoted your life to this. Is, there, is it fair to say that the, the spice trade or maybe even pepper was the driving force behind the, the colonisation of India? Is that true? It probably had a fair bit to do with it. I would say it was probably also uh, about um, gold and other resources, uh, even agricultural resources. Um, but spice would have had a huge amount to do with it because spices were extremely valuable. At one time in uh, 12th century England, you hear people referring to a peppercorn rent, which today means a cheap rent um, that, you, uh, that you would charge a tenant. But 
In 12th century England, some landlords demanded that rent was paid in peppercorns rather than the coin of the realm because peppercorns were so valuable. They at one time would even be sold one by one. You are fascinating. <laughs> I'm riveted. I am riveted. Yeah, but yeah. tell us about with, with the connection for, for you with India. When you go, where, where do you love to go? What on earth is this brotherhood of spice <laughs> merchants? The reason I referred to that was People were pretty familiar with herbs, and I was managing a spice company in Singapore back in 1986. And the Singapore government asked me to go and represent Singapore at this first international spice group meeting that was held. What an honour. Now, up until that time, dealing with spices in Australia, I was sort of selling to supermarkets and things like that. Everyone thought spices were a bit weird. There were hardly any people that you could really talk to about spices. And then I went to this conference in India, and there's a few hundred Indian delegates. There's about 50 or 60 from other countries, from Sierra Leone to the UK to the US, and we're all in the spice game. And, you know, and I must add that you've got to remember, too, what makes it interesting is that the spice trade is the world's second oldest profession. So what are your tips for a first-time visitor to India? Well, I think the best thing to do is, first of all, be reasonably cautious. I'd say for a first-time visitor, be fairly wary of street food. Mm. Um, But if you eat in uh, sort of the hotels and what look like good restaurants, um, you're pretty safe. As a rule, um, we tend to eat primarily vegetarian uh, because you're going to be a little bit uh, safer uh, with vegetarian, of course, uh, because in a vegetarian, a true vegetarian restaurant in India, India will have no meat at all on the premises. Um, get things that are cooked. Um, generally, don't drink the water. Always drink bottled water. Um, it's not a bad idea for people to maybe start taking probiotics about a week or so before they go there. Mm-hmm. That's great advice. And you will find that the Indians are so warm and welcoming. Like uh, Liz and I have been there about 15 or 16 times um, over the last 20 years. And, you know, the the people there are are, are warm and friendly and the food is really good. And and actually, it's not that hot. You know, if you ask for hot food, if you want more chilli in your food, they'll give it to you. And, of course, if you stick to food that uh, is primarily vegetarian, you're going to get some amazing uh, lentil and and bean dishes, beautiful things done with vegetables, you know, cauliflower, uh, ladies' finger, okra, all those sorts of things. Uh, just beautiful. And, and I would say for people who are a little bit wary of the idea of going to India, it's not a bad idea to start in the north. You know, you've got to do the old tourist triangle and see the Taj Mahal uh, and go to places like Jaipur, but also get down to the south uh, to Cochin, where you will find that there's a wonderful spice atmosphere. You can go up into the hills behind Cochin and see pepper farms and things like that. It's just wonderful. Want more travel in your day? Well then, join us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just search for Journeys to Come and follow us. And while you're there, hey, how about you share your own travel pics and stories with the hashtag Journeys to Come. Kim, tell us about Slumwear 108. Yes, Slumwear 108 is a slow clothing um, line that my best friend and I have developed and we collaborate with an NGO that's on the ground in Jaipur in India and they have a vocational training centre and so we work with them to develop beautiful products 
So um, when you talk yeah. about slow clothing, what yeah. does that mean? Well, it's truly it's social justice in a sense. It's a response to fast fashion, um, and that's not. It's just about a different choice. And um, it's, it's the way that our clothes are being made. We're looking now as consumers in, in more affluent areas. Where are things coming from? How are they made? Mm, mm. We travel to these parts of the world. We look at the poverty. And, you know, we, we're also looking for some solutions to these um, environmental problems, social problems. And slow clothing is one of those spaces. So where does the love for India come from for you, Kim? Oh, it's easy. My parents are uh, Anglo-Indian, mm-hmm. and so they were born in India. They were under the, you know, with the British rule in um, Madras, which is now Chennai. And so they had to migrate to Australia in the in the 60s. And it was a time when they had to come with nothing um, except for a very, I guess, um, innovative attitude in how to move between countries. And they taught us a lot on how to just use what you've got. Um, to move on in life and so I have a deep love for the country we ended up calling our third child India mm-hmm. as well <laughs> so um but that that's probably the strongest connection I you know I had Kim I know that you've teamed up with a, a wonderful Sydney mum called yes. Kath Davis Correct. and together you're working with the street children of yeah. India what is that like it's it's a blessing Mm. It's a complete privilege. Um, I guess, Katrina, one of the, the things that we like to talk about, we don't see ourselves as working with street children of Indian, and they are youth. They, they're former street kids who've come through this amazing NGO in Jaipur. Um, when we're in these spaces, we we really focus on our commonalities rather than our differences. Mm. Um, it's a beautiful way to travel the world. As well, I think most of us travel and we look at all the differences there, but when you're in a space and can also see what you have in common with each other, it really helps to crack open beautiful experiences. And Kim, I'm um, sure you'd agree that that's a part of the, the joy of travelling yes, as well. I, I mentioned absolutely. earlier in the show, I, I had a bit of a wake-up call when I, I was, was going through a, a bit of a tough region and, and yes. uh, learnt a lesson, learnt a lesson. Don't prejudge, yes. most yes. importantly. Um, yes. I, I, I do want to mention, just um, or have you say, just just in case, where can we get your, your beautiful fashion? I, I know I follow yes. Um, yes, uh, at Slumwear 108 on, on Instagram and I love yes. seeing your beautiful thank clothes. Where you. can I buy them? Online, Katrina. Mm-hmm. We do have a very – we have a small online presence and it's, it's on our website at thepossibilityproject.com.au. But we also do stalls. We do corporate engagements where we set up pop-ups. A big part of our work is the, um, the mindset behind how we've created slow mm. clothing because we bring to our community the attitudes we've learnt from people living in the slums. I should also ask him, when you travel to India, yeah. where do you stay? What do you love to do? Um, I guess, Katrina, it is pretty much work for us. So we do go to Jaipur, where, where this community is based. We stay in beautiful places. There's a fantastic um, French lady who's got a gorgeous restaurant and a lovely um, hotel attached to it. We stay in beautiful places. One of the things that Kath and I are really big on Mm. is that we're so grateful for what we have here at home. We love it. 
And so we don't go there feeling pity or guilt or embarrassed for what we have. We actually love what we have here. Mm. And then we go there and stay in beautiful places. And then during the day we're out in the slums or with the community and working um, to create what we do. While you're listening, why not add some travel to your inbox? Sign up for my weekly travel updates at journeystocome.com. It is time now we cut to the chase and get some top tips on travelling through India. And one of our top travel writers, Sophie Southwell, joins us now. Now, she describes India as a book that can't be read in one's lifetime. It's true. It is vast. Sophie has spent a huge amount of time travelling around India through the various bustling cities, uh, right down to the countryside, a quiet, quiet terrain, up into the mountains. Sophie Southwell, welcome to the show. I know that you adore India. Why do you love it so much? I do. It's just, look, it is pretty full on. And I think if you only give it a short amount of time, Mm -hmm. it would seem like pure chaos. But if you give (laughs) it a decent amount of time, you suddenly discover that it's actually organized chaos. It's almost (laughs) like one giant dance where all the locals know the steps. And as a tourist, it takes a while, but eventually you get hold of the rhythm yourself and the energy takes over you and it's, it's wonderful and magical and it all starts to make sense. It's absolutely wild, but um, I think for that reason, it's just eternally fascinating. You simply can't get bored there. There's always something new, something just completely bizarre or something that spontaneous and comes out of the woodwork. And It, it is intoxicating, is isn't it? It's it's it's, it it's so varied. So, what would you say to someone who hasn't has a feeling that you know there's a lot of slums and and it's chaos? Um, how do you get over that? Well, I think the thing is, um, the Indian people, because there is this desperate need to survive, are also incredibly entrepreneurial and creative, and they find a way to live their best life. And it's surprising because I visited some of the slums in Mumbai Mm. and they're literally sitting next to the world's most expensive residential property, this $1 billion mansion run by 500 staff with no one living in it. So there's all levels, but people find a way to make the most of their existence and to push forward and get more for themselves. So I think you have to give the people more credit Mm. and don't assume that they all hate their way of life because even in the slums, they were just the friendliest, Mm. um, smiliest people, weirdly enough. What are your tips for those planning a trip there? Give it time. Mm -hmm. Um, Make sure you give yourself the opportunity to have breaks away or a bit of seclusion or a little bit of luxury here and there just Mm. to get yourself back together again. Um, But get into the grit as well. Do things like city cycle tours and immerse yourself amongst the, the hustle and bustle because it's not as dangerous as I guess a lot of movies portray it to be Mm. and the Indian people if you show that you're open-minded and want to learn from them they will take you by the hand and pull you in honestly they're so hospitable and beautiful Sophie do you do you have some favorite places that that you've gone to that you could recommend to us without a doubt number one is the Leh Manali Highway in the north never heard of it a playground the gods. But I'm taking notes. The Lay Manali Highway. Yes. Got it. Honestly, yep. it has to be done in one's lifetime. Okay. And the highest part of the road is actually level with base um, 
Everest Base Camp practically. So wow. you really are in a different part of the world. It's just, it's not like anything you've ever seen before and it will stick with you. It will be tattooed to your brain forever. We it's talked about um, Jaipur. It's, okay, I hate to say it, but I've always heard Jaipur is lovely for going for jewellery shopping. I'm a shopper. Is that yes. true? Yes, it's not bad for that. It's quite, <laughs> um, well, it's known as the Pink City and it's, it's kind of peppered with palaces and oh. uh, forts and all these really highly embellished, beautiful historical sites. So That's me. That's my one. Yes. Yeah, it's absolutely glorious, glorious and it does feel quite lavish compared to some of the other parts of India. When do you think is the best time of the year to visit? Well, you want to avoid monsoon season, that's for sure, because it's thick and humid and wet. Um, so I would try and hit up Indian winter. Because during the summer, oh my goodness, I was in Varanasi and it was 47 degrees, Whoa. had food poisoning at the same time, and I was staying right Ooh. next to the cremation guard. So you can imagine it was a bit Lucky of a challenging Sophie. experience. <laughs> so sorry, uh, when, when, when is monsoon season? What are those months? Um, okay, so I think that's heading towards the end of the year. Okay, got it. Around September, October. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Journeys to Come. If you want any more information on the places that we visited, all the people we spoke to, then visit our website, journeystocome.com, for full details.